listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. Um, so my name is Susan Horning, and I'm here with Anadea Judith, and I'm delighted to be um, talking to you today, Anadea. I've been reviewing your books over the last few weeks and uh, really excited to talk to you about uh, some of the concepts that you uh, talk about in your books. Mostly, I, I would love to just hear um, a little bit about maybe some of your visions for our, our future. I've been uh, going through Waking the Global Heart and just very, very excited about uh, some of your ideas about how we're progressing through the chakras as we move forward into the new millennium and how, how we're progressing as a culture into our, into our hearts and beyond. Um, so I guess one of the themes I really wanted to focus on today was love and how love is coming into our world and how we're all sharing love and how this new paradigm is going to support our way forward. So maybe we could start with um, where we've come from. I know in your book um, you sort of go through a lot of the details of our of our movement from the earliest humans and our first chakra sort of mentality into sort of how we are now into our seventh chakra, into moving into <clears throat> the concepts of attachment. Maybe you could just briefly outline for us, um, you know, where we've come from and and what sort of stages we've come through and where we where it all where your ideas maybe started from. Yes, I'm so excited to be presenting on this topic because we live in such incredible times right now, times that evolution has taken 3.8 billion years since the birth cells to get to the point that we are at now. We are the ones privileged to be alive at the dawn of this awakening. Mm-hmm. And so in the book I deal with, in the book the, wake, uh, the Global Heart Awakens, I deal with three essential questions dealt with by all myths. Who are we? Where did we come from? Or really, rather, how did we get into this mess? And where are we going in our future? And the reason I like to start with who are we is to get a new definition of who we are at this time on the planet. And what I see is that we are an astounding species, unlike any other, the first species capable of realizing our planet as a totality of understanding it, the first ones capable of damaging that planet, the first to be able to realize we're damaging it, and the first to be able to do something about it, and the first ones to realize we're part of a vast cosmos that we have barely begun to explore. Mm -hmm. True. So it's really quite amazing, our potential technologically, our potential creatively, our, our potential with intelligence and and interconnection of who we are right now. And I say that evolution is the God's way of making more gods. So the evolutionary process is to take us from an immature stage to a mature stage, and that mature stage is really having godlike powers and hopefully a godlike consciousness to go with it. But in this evolutionary process, who we are is we're only adolescents right now. We have been children growing up in the primal garden and then toddlers teeming across the land and then we went through 5,000 years of sibling rivalry mm-hmm. as we were growing up and now we're adolescents on the verge of our initiation into planetary adulthood. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the shift that we're going through and that initiation will take us from an operating system, if you will, or an organizing principle in the world that has been based on the love of power that's been going on for the last 5,000 years, or what I call the third chakra, to one based on the power of love or the heart chakra. 
presence on the eve of our initiation into adulthood. Now, that's not a one-day thing by no. any means. Yeah. The problems on the planet right now are the initiating factors, the evolutionary drivers that are driving humanity to its new organizing principle. And so that's pushing us to evolve into more heart-based, more cooperative, more collaborative, more egalitarian organizing systems than we have had in the past, which are actually going to be more efficient and better for everybody. Mm -hmm. I agree. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about sort of where, uh, you know, the third chakra and what sort of problems came with that um, time where we were kind of, I mean, in your book, you talk a little bit about the hero's quest and about how the hero's quest has sort of um, developed us um, into this uh, hunger for wealth and fame and power purely for the sake of the ego. And maybe you could just expand on that a little bit and how that sort of relates to the third chakra and maybe just expand on... on, um, how that needs to change or why that's changing? Well, when we first started to emerge into ego-based consciousness, the ego was was a new thing. It was, you know, to have an individual consciousness. We, we have to understand it in the context of the time. People were so community-oriented and so embedded in the community, and, you know, they just did what, you know, the norm was, that there wasn't that much of a sense of, Gee, I'm an individual, and what okay. do I want, and who am I? I see. So, so the emergence this... of ego-based consciousness was was a new thing, and it first thought to be a great thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it was an important step on the evolutionary journey to mm-hmm. develop the individual. But um, we got caught in that. And so as we emerged into the third chakra phase of history, which I see started about 5,000 years ago when we entered the first civilizations, you know, we have to see that humanity was in a very childlike state. People didn't know how to read or write, you know, except for a very, I mean, that was just the beginning of writing, and only a elite few people knew how to do it. Right. We didn't have technology. We didn't have communication devices or motorized vehicles, and we didn't know much about the world. We didn't know much about disease, and, you know, we didn't know much about anything. We lived in cities of 50 or 100,000 people in an area the size of a very small town. And so that was pretty crowded for all these people that didn't really know much. It took a very strong-armed ruler to tell everybody what to do to keep things in order. Right. And so we entered this top-down, power-over kind of organizing principle for society. And that's held us together and moved us along for better and worse for the last 5,000 years. And the good part of it is it kept a certain amount of order. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, labor began to specialize. We did learn to read and write. We developed technology and science and all of those things. It was a very hyper-masculine era. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the good part of it is we did progress. The bad part of it was that it was very aggressive and dominating. There were a lot of wars. It was, like I say, extremely masculine. So the feminine was really really wiped out any worship of the goddess or the divine feminine in any way was severely punished yeah. and uh, women were reduced to the status of daughters to the masculine which is more like the father so it was a very unequal relationship between men and women and the result of all this domination is that everything that's dominated is disempowered mm-hmm. so if you you know work for a 
a corporation in which you're just supposed to do what you're told and you don't have any room for creative input, or then you're not going to harness your creative input. Of course. So in a world that's disempowered, we don't have the ability to respond, which means we can't, we don't take responsibility. Mm. And now we're coming into where this third chakra paradigm has, you know, dominated the earth, it's dominated nature, it's dominated so much that we've dominated the life out of everything. And it's no longer working for a population that has grown up and learned to read and write and now has the internet and we have yeah. our own cars and we can travel in planes and we can communicate with cell phones and computers. And, yeah, you know, it's quite a different world. More, more, much more grown up population. Yeah, it's quite a different world. This parent-child dynamic. Yes. And it's not working. No. And so one of the things that you talk about in your um, in Eastern Body, Western Mind, which is an incredibly rich book, um, by the way, um, you relate you. the, the a quality of shame to the third chakra. And so um, when, when we have shame, that underlies the sort of control. And, and can you talk a little bit about what shame does and how it sort of creates this sense of oppression and sort of how it becomes destructive? Yes, I can, because I talk about the demons in the chakras, which are yeah. not critters, but they are energies that are counterproductive to a healthy functioning of that chakra. Yes. And so shame is actually the demon of the third chakra. Right. When people are disempowered, when they are not allowed to act in their healthy self-interest, and I don't mean being selfish, but, you know, to protect themselves, um, to take care of themselves, to honor themselves, they experience shame. Mm -hmm. The result of child abuse is that a child feels shame. The result of rape is that the rape victim feels shame, even though it wasn't their fault um, until they work through it and understand, you know. Uh, the result of violence is shame. The result of any disempowerment, people who work in a lowly position and are dominated by other people and they go to work every day, they feel shame about their position. Right. They feel shame about who they are in life. And, and shame is counterproductive to power. Yes. And to a sense of our confidence and our competence. And when we feel shame, we don't, we don't feel courageous. Right. And uh, so you don't get the best of people when there is shame. We have to work through that shame and realize that in almost all cases, shame is instituted from outside the self. Someone put it on you. You know, it's not something that we just come up with by ourselves. You know, there might be unrealistic expectations. There might have been mistreatment. Um, but it's really a demon that disempowers us. Right, and so as a collective... That, you know, between love and power, or between power and love, that we don't give up our power to get to the heart chakra. We stand in it. Yes. You know, we use our power as a launching pad to take things to a higher level. Yes. So as a collective, this quality of shame, you know, would you say that we've all experienced this over the past period? And um, how do we work as a collective to overcome these, this sort of feeling of shame and really stand in our power and maybe you could just I, I did read a little bit in your um, work about understanding the dynamic masculine and the static feminine and maybe you could explain a little bit about those terms to me so that I can be a little more clear on what they mean as we progress through um, through time moving from the dynamic masculine into the static masculine and, and what that okay. means yeah so let me start with that those are 
Yeah. Okay. It's a framing of our collective history, mm -hmm. which is a, a journey through the chakras, just as an Eastern body, Western mind, I map the chakra system onto the individual development, you know, our infancy and our toddlerhood and our childhood and our adolescence. And uh, now I've done that with humanities, mm -hmm. infancy, toddlerhood, and childhood. So we begin life both as individuals and as a culture emerging from the mother. All of us were born from the mother. Yeah. And so the mother was the first thing we knew. Mm -hmm. And the infancy of culture was born from the womb of nature or Mother Earth. And this was known as the static feminine, or it wasn't called that then, but you know, historically we can look back and see. And the static feminine is that uh, period in an infant's life when everything is centered around the mother. So it's the symbol is like a circle with a dot in the middle. You could think of that as the breast. You could think of the mother as the dot in the middle, and the child can only go so far around that circle and survive because they can't go really outside of the circle. They can't go too far away from the mother and still survive at that age. So as infants in the garden, so to speak, we were helpless and dependent on Mother Nature, and yet Mother Nature was abundant. Yeah. You know, we, were, we were small, and the fruit and game, and plants were abundant, just like the breast is just provide, provided for the infant, but they can't do much because they're babies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then as we learned to put seeds in the ground in the Neolithic, we started to take a little more power into our hands for our survival, and we could have settled villages, and we could build temples, and... You know, we worship both the god and the goddess. They were like our parents. And they were seen as all-powerful. And if we did the right rites, then, you know, the rain would fall and the crops would grow and we would have many children. And, and yes. so we did, and we had many children. And <laughs> they grew up, and we started bumping into each other. <laughs> yeah. And we came across the scarcities of earth and water, which, by the way, are the elements of the first two chakras. And we right. started fighting, and that's when we started coming into the third chakra, aggression and domination. And, and no, this is my land. This is my water. I'm going to kill you. No, this is my land, and I'm going to protect my family. And right. little skirmishes. You know, you can see that a village only needed to get beat up once before they'd say, well, next time these guys come, we're going to be ready. Let's, let's put our energy into making spears and arrows, and let's train our boys to fight. Right. And the men, rather than being more violent, I think they just got drafted into it because women couldn't fight if they were nursing children. And so it just escalated from there to the point where, you know, it still escalates to where we have nuclear weapons today. Mm -hmm. So this has all been part of the age of power. And in that powerlessness, there is a cultural shame. And and something that has been denied in this, especially now, is our shadow. And the shadow is still there. And I think when the shadow, this is back to your question about how do we heal the cultural shame. Yes. When the shadow is denied, it doesn't mean we don't feel it. We feel something is wrong. Yes. And I think there's a sense of shame there when we don't have the power to face it, when we don't understand it, when we don't acknowledge it. And... Uh, that we have to understand, for instance, that America is, you know, sending drones to Pakistan and killing innocent people. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. um, this shadow is not really owned or talked about. Right. And that it creates a kind of cultural shame. It does. And that we're existing with that currently, you know, and, and, 
and how can we move from there? How can we empower ourselves from there to move forward into into love or into where we're going, I guess? Well, the word I use is that we are becoming love-powered evolutionaries. Nice. <laughs> and uh, that, that is people who have gotten to the point where they have woken up to the fact that, oh, we are in an evolutionary leap right now, and we can be conscious agents of that evolution. And what are we, we're not disempowered, we're empowered. We're firmly empowered, we're fired up, we're activists. Yes. And we are fired up, but not for the sake of power. We're fired up to save and to serve what we love. Mm-hmm. And this means that the power, I mean, love is not just a thing, it's an enormous spiritual power. The power of love. The power of love to transform the power of love to carry a movement, the power of love to wake people up, the power of love to heal. So it's a different kind of power than what we've been dealing with in the world. So love-powered evolutionaries are empowered by their hearts. And I see that that's kind of an identity of what we're becoming. And a way to heal that shame is to get up off our butts and do something. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that you said in your book that it's easy to shake your fist at controlling regimes and old world perspectives and play the victim. One of the things that I really liked that you said, you said whether it's a teenager to his parents, a worker to her boss, or a country to its dictator, criticizing the oppressive side of power is the easy part. And um, creating a better system is by far the bigger challenge. And so I think that, you know, understanding how we're sharing power and how to make this transition is sort of... Um, what I think I'm most interested in and, and definitely my peers that, um, around me are very interested in is like, how, how do we do that? You know, how do we stop shaking our fist at the, at the controlling regimes and actually take action forward that um, helps us to become, you know, more heart centric? Um, I think you, you called it a prosumer or like a, the phenomenon of combining producers and consumers. I run a yoga center. Yeah. I run a yoga center here in Vancouver and I do a lot of a lot of combinations. I, I work my desk with karma yoga and we sort of were kind of involved in this community of trade and barter system whereby we're all sort of working to keep the, the, the wheels turning in, in uh, the business. But I still sort of, I still own the business and still have a, a degree of control. And so I guess like blending these ideas of um, producers and consumers and seeing that we're, there's sort of a, a balance between the two or how do we create those balances and how do we make them work effectively without saying power is wrong and, you know, this is bad and this is good. Like, because I'm seeing it even in a very micro level with my own small business, how do, you know, how do we, how do we create harmony with some power and some, you know, how do we distribute our power and yeah, I guess just how do we do it? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the old power structures, they are actually a very efficient way for getting things done on a small scale. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I hate to admit it, but when I was in a land-based community and we had a one-day work, a one-day retreat to say, what's working in our community and what isn't, we discovered that the things that were working were things that were headed up by one person. You know, <laughs> yeah. This project or this event <laughs> or this I can or really... garden or the building of this you know, shed or, or the publishing of the magazine or whatever, that the things that worked best were somebody was fired up and they said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to organize it. So, uh, you know, for people to take their power and get something done and, and work with other people and even, you know, that somebody has an idea and they sort of say, well, here's how it's going to go. Here's the strategy and other people fold into it. 
that's a model that actually works. Yes, I can relate to that. The problem with it on a large scale is the top gets so out of touch with the bottom, you know. Right. And we see this in the gap between rich and poor today, you know, that the 0.1% that has all the money is completely out of touch with the other, you know, especially with, towards the bottom of the 99%. They have no idea what, what it's like to live in that kind of poverty. And the people yeah. that are bosses and CEOs don't know what it's like to work in the corporation. And the corporations aren't dedicated to anything sacred. Right. So I think one thing is to have a common understanding amongst everyone that works in an organization. What is the sacred purpose of the organization and of the organization in the larger scheme of things? Like, you know, we've been given the tools of power so that those tools are in the hands of the common people like it's never been before in history. You know, the tools to to write and publish and organize and broadcast yes. and, and travel and, and create events and all of that. Yes. It's never been in the hands of the common people before. And we've been given, you know, our roads and our airports and our trains and our grocery stores and our, you know, the whole infrastructure has been created over the millennium, slowly laid down, and now it's here. We don't have to go out and build the railroads. Right, yeah. We don't have to go out and do these things. It's all there. And now we say, for what purpose? Is it just there so we can mindlessly watch TV and and, you know, read pornography on the Internet, or right. there for a higher purpose of humanity coming together. Right. Of and course. I it's... think in an organization that everyone gets aligned on what is the purpose here, what is the vision, and what is the best way amongst us to coordinate the power in service of that vision. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, you know, I think we're also moving away from... You know, this idea, I, I love the way um, that you, you use the word technocratic utopia, where man sort of had this dominion over the natural world, and we've kind of developed this, and our, all of our scientific knowledge has really kind of conquered, and now we're stepping back and saying, okay, like, we've conquered, but now how can we be in unity with, with nature and in unity with the world, still being able to survive, but in a more harmonious and sustainable way, and... Um, I love the quote that you put in from Charles Darwin, which was a great discussion as well, where he said it's where he said it's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent sur- that survives. It is the one that is most adaptable to change. And um, I think as we start to create some change, you know, people who are still in this uh, concept of the technocratic utopia are in being invited into blend more into a more heart centric way of being. And um, those of us who are who are moving toward that um, have a role to play in bringing people into into it, this understanding of of balance between, you know, how we can adapt our intellect to really see the world in a, in a new way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, that... Yeah, go ahead. Great. Now you were about to ask a question? Yeah, well, I was just going to ask you sort of, um, what are the means to do that? Like, how do, we, how do we hold hands with the scientific minds and how do we bring a unity between mm-hmm. um, the new forms of, you know, love and heart-centric based... Um, a sustainable embrace of, of the globe and how do we link arms and hold hands with the scientific uh, communities that are still sort of um, celebrating this technocratic utopia? 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to understand, again, sort of the historical perspective, because we began in a mythic world where the myths told us what to do. I mean, the myths were the guiding meaning that gave meaning to the culture. And then, and a lot of those myths were based on, you know, stories of capricious gods and goddesses, and, and you know, they were, they were stories, they were allegories. Mm-hmm. And then when science came along, it said, no, this is the answer, and it threw out all the myths. Right. <laughs> and so, it, it, and it was very left brain and very masculine, mm-hmm. and very much separated from nature. Okay, yes. just as you were saying, we can have dominion over nature. Nature is separate from us. And we put up walls and separated ourselves from nature, and we live separate from nature. And we put additives in our food and packaging around everything, and we made more and more separation from nature. Mm-hmm. And this is now killing our world. Right. So your question of how do we come back into harmony with that, it's, science is not that it's bad or wrong, it's that it's one-sided. Yes. When we stepped forward into science, we took a giant step forward on our right leg. Mm-hmm. But without myth, we can't move the left leg again. Mm-hmm. The science tells us information, but it doesn't tell us what it's for. It doesn't tell us what it means. It doesn't tell us what we're here for on this planet. No, it doesn't. It just says cells are made of organelles, and organelles are made of atoms, and, you know, things, mm-hmm. I mean, not cells, but, yeah. Yeah. And the organs and cells and all that. You know, I mean, it'll tell us what something is, but not how it works. Yeah. So we can use that knowledge, which is important knowledge, and take it to a higher level and say, but what is the purpose of everything? What are we here for? What are we here to create? And the answer to that that I see, and of course everybody has their own answer, is that we are here to create heaven on earth. We are here to create a planet that works for all, a planet of beauty and majesty and mystery and ecstasy and joy and love and creative potential. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds, you know, very Pollyannic. No, think, it sounds very you know, positive. All which... of a sudden I'm going to click my fingers and we're going to see this in my lifetime. Yes. But I think just the concept of heaven and earth can give us, oh, that's what we're doing here. And we're co-creating it together. So how do we do it? Anywhere that we're working together, how can we make that relationship, that workplace, a little more heavenly? Yes. And I love that idea. I think that, you know, creating a really positive vision for our future is really um, important right now because I think even with the, the Occupy movement, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of talk around words like oppression and privilege and a lot of sort of negatively connotated words that sort of bring us into this idea that we're in some way, you know, struggling and, and you know, dying or, or you know, and I, I really love that you would bring in a positive um, a positive vision of heaven on earth. I think that's that's where we are headed and I think that's where we need to focus our energies. And, um, you know, I was thinking too about, around communities, um, the uh, David Corton in, in The Great Turning, you mentioned he sort of talked about how we engage in meaningful connections through public forums. And maybe you could just um, suggest some ways that we can get involved, whether it's, you know, on a smaller level in someone's living room or like through churches or community service organizations. Maybe you could just uh, touch a little bit on some of the ways that we can um, get more involved in 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 creating communities and creating places where we can find heaven and we can find this this bliss that we're seeking. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Paul Hawkins, uh, he has a website, wiserearth.com. Mm-hmm. He has documented that the largest movement in the history of humankind and the largest movement on the planet today is individuals volunteering for small organizations or small and large ones that are formed not by the government, but formed by people to address the environment, to address social justice, democracy, peace, Mm -hmm. uh, the study of enlightenment, spirituality, all of these things that, you know, there are organizations already existing that anybody can join. And if you don't have time because you work, you can give them money. If you don't have money because you don't work that much or don't have a good paying job, you can give your time. Mm -hmm. And you can create your own. To me, this discussion of where we're going at this time and how do we offset the problems that are threatening to put an end to the whole experiment <laughs> yeah. is the most important discussion we could have, and I don't know why it's not going on in every living room. Yes. So, you know, we can hold dinner parties and, and salons and yes. discussion groups and online chat groups and... We can get involved in radio. I have an expression, become radioactive. Yeah, Farah will love that, radioactive. You know, get on the phone and call in, or you yourself are doing radio, and a lot of people are doing Mm -hmm. online radio. Um, You know, there's ways to get involved and to, you know, communicate with others. So I think the first step is just talk about it to everybody you can and see where you catalyze some sparks. Yes. Because conversation catalyzes. Yeah. Yeah. I and talk about things when I'm standing in line at security at the airport, you know? Right. I, uh, I try to engage people, you know, if I'm traveling alone and sit next to them, or, you know, at the counter in a restaurant or, you know, I, I mean, I just try to get, the, get this conversation going everywhere I can. Yeah. I think it's the most meaningful one we can have. It certainly is, and I think even just saying that, it's how we relate to each other in a lineup even. You know, I teach yoga, and I'm teaching a lot of partner yoga now, and I'm really enjoying just the um, the way that we connect consciously through the body. So how we touch one another can be very telling about how we are actually communicating in our relationships. So I, I teach people to come into a room and put their hands on one another in a way that's healing and therapeutic. And I think, you know, uh, as I sort of train more and more people to do this, I think as we train our bodies to touch other people's bodies in a way that's conscious, we can transform our minds to understand that, you know, we are those bodies. We are all the same. We're all the same creature. And, you know, I think if, if more and more of us can put our hands on one another in a conscious and loving way, in a healing way, um, then that will, then that can Uh, create large changes it's just I think when we start to look at the globe and sort of start to resist the higher authorities like you were talking about the separation between the rich and the poor or those who are in authority and those who are at the bottom I think that's where you're saying that there's a lot of the a lot of the toxicity comes in because we're we're not actually connected and so perhaps we could work in a place where we're actually just working with the nucleus of people that surround us so our friends and our family and starting there and in that way, like a mandala expanding into the higher levels, because it's it sort of seems almost like futile or very, very difficult to sort of fight against this world oppression and, and you know, have these um, grandiose concepts about, you know, 
trying to make these large changes when really on, um, on a personal level, we're still working to just resolve our own interpersonal conflicts on a day-to-day basis. So I don't know, I, I sort of suggest sometimes to my students or to the people that I'm talking to is to work on yourself and to work on everybody around you that you're touching day-to-day. And that's where we, that's where the work is done. Um, because it does seem, it does sort of feel like, I, I don't know, I, I don't know, maybe you can help me with this is, you know, how do we create democracy that's effective or how do we create this like global citizenship effectively when we're so detached from, from the global powers? Mm-hmm. Well, you just went across a lot of topics there. One of them <laughs> is the topic of touch. And if we look historically, you know, touch is the most natural thing mm-hmm. that we do with each other. And yet it was forbidden for a long time. It was laden with shame. Yes. guilt, and mm-hmm. it was, you know, touch is part of sexuality, and that's bad, and, you know, even now teachers can't hug their students, you know, because they might get, you know, sued with a lawsuit for, you know, inappropriate something. Yeah, so, yeah. So we've gotten out of touch. Out of so touch. And we work to bring <laughs> people back in touch, back in touch with themselves, back in touch with each other. And then when you get somebody on a yoga mat, whether they're doing single yoga or partner yoga, they get in touch with themselves. They get in touch with their insides. They get in mm-hmm. touch with their breath. They mm-hmm. get in touch with their body. And so being in touch, we start to get in touch with reality. And that's an essential first step. So I just wanted to go back to the, to the beginning of, of what you said there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, from that, we connect with each other. And from a place of joy, you know, touch brings us not only in touch, but it brings us pleasure and joy, and that's a place to create from, not pain and separation. Right. And so, as we do that, and then you probably find in your classes, and especially your partner classes, that um, it creates a kind of community. Indeed, it does. You know, when couples practice that together, they create more intimacy. Yes. And, um, and, and it's creating health at the same time. So part of it is we need to go forth as one-powered evolutionaries with really healthy bodies, with alignment in our bodies, alignment in our chakras. Mm-hmm. And so the practices that have been handed down to us from the ancestors, practices like yoga and meditation or martial arts or you know different spiritual practices, they've been given to us to help us mature into the next age. You know, they're not the goal, but they're the tool yes. that helps us get to the goal. Right. And and I always like to sort of think about touch and think about the hands. And, I, I, you know, this age, we're sort of in a hand-based age where we're using hand technologies like cell phones and we're keyboarding with our hands. And the hands are the direct connection to the heart. And so I really feel like when we start uh-huh. using our hands, and I'm doing Thai massage and teaching Thai massage and how we put our hands on one another is directly relevant to how we connect to our hearts and perhaps even to our global heart as we connect to our own hearts and the hearts of our friends and family around us and how this tool can sort of help reveal to us, you know, the center of our center, the heart chakra, which is, um, you know, where we're headed. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about, about the heart and the heart chakra and its, its meaning in our, in this new paradigm. Well, the heart, of course, we all know is the center of love and relationship and and we all think we know what love is, and we think of it as a noun, you know. I want love, or I want to give love, or I need love, or I have love. Yeah. It's a noun, but it's actually a verb as well. 
Yes. And but coming into that is, you know, we actually create love by loving, by caring, by doing acts of generosity and forgiveness and compassion. And those things actually open the heart and generate more love. So it's sort of like the more we give and the more all of us give, the more there is for everybody. Yes. Um, and, you know, we're, we're finding that. And the trouble with our economy is it's a take economy. It's not a give economy. Mm-hmm. And the idea in our economy is to go out and get as much as you can for yourself and squirrel it away in a savings account and, you know, uh, protect it and at all costs. And it's not about a giving economy. So, of course, it doesn't create abundance. So the heart, you know, we think of it as a sentiment, but I'm actually talking about it as an action. Not just as that, but as an organizing principle. Right. To do what you love, to serve what you love, to save what you love, to to follow your heart, to mm-hmm. work on opening your heart, to enhance your relationships, to bring more joy into life. And if we, you know, there's a saying that whatever you focus on, you create more of. So if we focus on what we love, we're going to create more of what we love. Yes. But what do we love? We love beauty. We love nature. We love harmony. We love children. We love, you know, freedom. We love creativity. We love art. If we focus on those things, they become the center of society. Yes. And right now, they tend to be the things that get cut out. You know, when budgets get short in schools, they cut out the art and music program. You know? Yes. Um, and we need to focus. So the heart can actually lead us to the future. Yes, I agree. And lead us to a future that's joyful rather than a future that's, you know, um, yeah, debilitated or in some way uh, full of lack. Or somber or, yeah, yeah, but one that's joyful and celebratory and has beauty. Yes. And I think beauty is one of the things that we've lost along the way as an important, essential value. Yes, I agree. And, you know, nature is still beautiful, but many of our cities, you walk down a city street, it's not beautiful. Yeah. You know? You see a lot of competing signs and storefronts that are all different. They have nothing to do with each other harmoniously, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's polluted and dirty and cracked cement. And, you know, we have, you, you go into a post office and it's not beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> you stand in line there for 20 minutes and no one talks to each other and they all stand you know, maybe playing games on their cell phone. Yeah, I practice <laughs> you know, feng shui um, and in feng shui and every single. People work there looking at these ugly walls 40 hours a week, year after year. Mm-hmm. You know, if we create more beauty everywhere we go, life becomes more heavenly. That's so right. creating beauty is part of creating heaven on earth. That's right. And, you know, I do feng shui and I, I do some feng shui consultants. And one of the things my teacher taught me is that feng shui loves beauty. So if it's beautiful, it's very feng shui. If it's beautiful, harmony will exist there. Where if it's dilapidated or it's broken or it's old, we say it's full of sha chi or like this old energy or debilitated energy. You know, nothing can thrive around that. And so yeah. beautifying yeah. our neighborhoods and creating beauty around us automatically enhances our sense and feeling of love and, and joyfulness. And so I do believe that beauty is sometimes undervalued in our society or that beauty is sometimes called down as something that, you know, an, a superficial value. Whereas, you know, if we can embrace beauty and really love things that are beautiful and see the beauty in others, I think that that's a really mm-hmm. exactly. definitely a pathway. Yeah, seeing, seeing the beauty in others is really important too. That's really, you know, the fun, one of the fundamental. 
fundamental things about namaste is mm. that the divine exists in me, in you, in everything. And to really see the beauty is to see the divine spark within all life. And beauty is not superficial, it's essential. Yes. You know, it's an essential oh, it is essential. Mm. As important as peace, as important as love, as important as harmony. Lovely. Yeah. So we only have about a minute left, Anadea, and I just, um, I'd love to just read the last paragraph of your lovely book, um, The Global Heart Awakens. Um, and it's been a real delight to, to talk to you today. And I'd just love to read this paragraph because it really gave me goosebumps as I, as I closed your book to, to read this final paragraph on the heart. And what you wrote is, the heart is the center of the chakra system, which in, t- which in, turn is vertically aligned along the center core of our being. This makes the heart the center of centers, the core of the core, the unifying chakra of an evolving collective organism. It is the integrator of polarities, the coordinator of synchronous beating, the distributor of circulation, the center of that which brings things into relationship through the universal power of love. So a beautifully written book and and very much, yeah, very much a a masterpiece so thank you so much for for sharing it with us and thank you so much for sharing your time do you have anything else that you'd like to add oh yes i would like to mention that i have the online course starting tomorrow wow um for seven weeks called the love powered evolutionary and it is all about really the questions you've asked me is it's the how you know it's how do we become love powered evolutionaries how do we open ourselves to the great work how do we reclaim the power of touch? How do we yes. get connected with our higher power? How do we open the heart? How do we communicate our vision? You know, how do we open our vision visionary capacity? So you can find out about that on my website, sacredcenters.com, or you can go to loveevolutionary.com. And that's a seven-week course starting tomorrow night. And if you can't be online live you can always you'll get a link the next day and you can listen to the course in your own time wonderful many bonuses that you get with that um many many bonuses interviews with different people charles eisenstein who wrote sacred economics yes barbara marks hubbard who's one of the leading evolutionary thinkers of our time Mm -hmm. an interview with sean corn who i think is an exemplary love powered evolutionary yes um so there's a lot of bonuses you get with that too Fantastic. That sounds really amazing. So uh, the website again, sacredcenters.com and loveevolutionary.com. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. Okay, yeah. great. And the book's website is globalheartawakens.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, people can reach me through any of those channels. Okay, great. Anadea, it's been a great pleasure um, for me to talk to you today. I really feel deeply honored by having the opportunity to talk to you about some of your amazing concepts. And thank you so much for um, sharing with us and Drishti Point, um, all of your wisdom. And Drishti Point Radio is a yoga podcast for mind, body, and soul. Uh, and thank you, Farah Nazarelli, for hosting us again um, on Drishti Point. And for more information on that, you can see uh, drishtipoint.ca. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.